Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, Stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live. Welcome, everybody, to Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie, and I am your host and moderator for tonight's epic debate on Is Oneness Biblical? I have Matt Slick. And John Barton here with me tonight to debate this very important topic. Now, before we get into uh, opening statements and the debate itself, what I like to do is kind of break the ice, get to know the debaters for tonight a little bit. And uh, why don't we start with uh, Matt, the slickest man who ever lived, as I typically like to uh, introduce you as. How have you been, uh, brother? You know, a little bit about you, a little bit about Carm. Go ahead. Well, I've been fine. And uh, how many times have we done a debate here? You've hosted like five, six, seven, eight, nine, something like that, right? I, I think we're going on nine. I think this is your ninth nine? time, Matt. So you're going to set a record, brother. Yeah, because I, I remember when we first started, your hair was a lot further up. But, you know, <laughs> All these debates are aging me. That's right. They're aging you. I was teasing them about it before we got started. So my name is Matt Slick, and that's my real name. Sometimes people think the last name Slick is a pseudonym it's not it's my real name and uh, i'm a christian trinitarian i defend the christian faith i do apologetics uh the defense of the christian faith my website carm.org is uh 26 years old had 150 million visitors i've been doing radio for 17 years written a few books do a lot of debates impromptu teaching etc etc and i defend the truth of the christian revelation as given to us in the word of god and i believe that oneness is false and uh we're gonna have a discussion about it Awesome. I appreciate it, Matt. Matt, what's that world famous book you wrote about uh, women or wives or uh... how to woo and win women by being an obnoxious jerk? <laughs> That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. And the, the thing about it it's is, was, well, no research necessary. It was all just came naturally. So right. I just, just wrote it out there. You were predestined and born to write that book. So that's right. Um, among others, I'm working on a couple others right now, but yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you being here. I know how busy you are, Matt. So thank you for giving us your time. I've got your uh, relevant links, your website, YouTube channel, uh, linked in the, in the description box for people to see. So, okay. John, John Barton, good to have you. This is your first time here on the uh, debate platform. I do appreciate you being willing to engage this important topic. Uh, for the audience, a little, bit, a little bit about you, a little bit about who you are, if you have a channel or a ministry, a little bit about that as well. well my name is uh, John Barton. Um, on my channel, I go by Brother John. Um, I, I host an Apostolic Approach channel on YouTube and am the founder and president of Black Fire Revival Ministries. Um, and we have our page on Facebook, and we're on Google. Um, I do apologetics research and um, on oneness theology, as well as uh, ecostology, you know, are my two um, premier topics that I uh, do research on. 
Uh, I defend the oneness faith uh, vigorously, and um, uh, that's what I'm here tonight to do, is to prove that um, not only is oneness biblical, but that the Trinity is not a substitute biblically for oneness. So um, with that, it's great to be here. Um, it's a privilege uh, to be here de debating against Matt Slate on this issue, um, prominent figure in Trinitarian apologetics, and I'm just uh, grateful for this chance to defend the oneness space for all to see. Thank you all. Just realized I was on mute, so <laughs> appreciate the patience there. So, uh, John, I do appreciate the introduction and your uh, relevant links as well are linked in the description box. So, if you're uh, if you like what you're seeing from the debaters for tonight, uh, check out their links again in the description box. So, uh, the structure for tonight is going to be uh, for, uh, it's going to be a formal debate. We're going to have 12 minute opening statements. The topic being is oneness biblical. We're going to have John uh, start us off with his opening statement. 12 minutes. Then we're going to have eight minute under, uninterrupted rebuttals, followed by a 40 minute discussion. We're going to break this up into two segments of 20 minutes where uh, John will cross examine Matt leading the way for 20 and then Matt will uh, lead the way for the final 20. And then we're going to have a five minute uh, concluding statement. And then this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. We're going to have a roughly 30 minute audience Q&A. Just please make, make sure you're tagging me with your questions. That way I don't miss them and, uh, and, and we'll have some fun. So with all of that being said, let's get right into uh, the opening statements. John, John Barton, we're going to hand it over to you. Uh, whenever you're ready, you've got 12 minutes. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and start. The question for tonight is, is oneness biblical? And we have to focus on the fact that biblical means it lines up with Scripture and it harmonizes with the totality of Scripture. Oneness teaches strict monotheism. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, we're told that we have one God, he's one Lord, and Jesus quotes the great commandment in Mark 12, 29. Oneness also teaches that we have one God, the Father, which is in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Ephesians 4, 6, John 17, 3, and Malachi 2, 10. Jesus also tells us that he's the only true God, even to the point of calling the Father my God in John 20, 17. Oneness teaches that this one God, the Father, was manifested in flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, which says that God was manifested into the flesh. Isaiah 7.14, which says that his name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's clarified in Matthew 1.23. Even John 1, 1 through 14 tells us that the word was with God and was God. And we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And so um, we have to understand that unto us, a church, unto us, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says that unto us, as a church, there is one God, the Father. Now, we can't go against that in any way, shape, or form and say that there is a, a God, the Son, or a God, the Holy Spirit, because Scripture does not support that, not through any any of these scriptures that I mentioned through the Old Testament into the New Testament, oneness teaches um, that Jesus is that one true God, the Father. So if he is God, Jesus, then he must be the Father because unto us is one God, the Father. And that's clearly 
told to us in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, harmonized with John 20, 28, where we find that unto us the church is one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ. And Thomas, who is the founding member of the church and thus therefore a part of the church, clarified that Jesus is both Lord and God. So we have to keep scripture in harmony. We can't teach that there's any other God besides the one God, the Father, when scripture tells us plainly that there is one God, the Father. If Jesus is God, as Hebrews 1.8 says he is, which I believe he is, then he must be the Father. One is teaches that the Holy Spirit is the Father. Matthew 1.18 through 20 says that Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit along with Luke 1.35. And we... Um, Commonly, what I believe, we commonly misunderstand the baptism of Jesus as there are three persons present when we, we don't see the father mentioned anywhere is except in the fact that he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. But what we don't what we don't have clearly revealed to us is whether that was the Holy Spirit talking in a disembodied voice or the father. It didn't say that the father said this. So I'm to assume that since the Holy Spirit is recorded in those very same books as being the father of Jesus and the one who impregnated Mary, then it very well could be that the, that the Holy Spirit came down at the baptism and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And this is what oneness teaches, that the Holy Spirit is the father. Is it biblical? Indeed it is. Let's go a little further. In oneness teaches that Jesus is also the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 17 through 18, we have Jesus teaching us of another comforter that is going to come down and be with us. But then he says that this comforter dwells with us in a current usage. That, that word is in a current usage and shall be in us. And then in verse 18, clearly identifies who it is when he says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And Jesus himself is the comforter that comes to us. That's clarified in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, where he is called the spirit. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is called the spirit of Christ. And Philippians 1:19, where we have supply through the spirit of Jesus Christ and literally names the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, which is undeniable. We also have in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, where the Holy Spirit is identified as the spirit of the son. And what we have is the father sending the son into the world and then later sending the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying at the father. This harmonizes with the rest of the New Testament in teaching that Jesus is the comforter that will come. It is the spirit of Jesus Christ that indwells within us. Christ in us, hope of glory. We have to understand that, that, that Jesus clearly said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. As the son of God, he said, I, is, he clarified, clearly identified himself as the Holy Spirit in John 14. And oneness teaches the mystery of godliness. And the first part of the mystery of godliness is that God was manifested into the flesh. Since this is the first part of the mystery of godliness, of which there are six points that 
don't aren't really relevant to this uh, debate. The we I have to understand it that this is a mystery. It is a mystery that God was manifested into the flesh. In John sixteen twenty five, we have to understand this mystery that is taught to us by the Son of God. Jesus says that He doesn't teach clearly and plainly, but He teaches in Proverbs and 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 what John Gill's expositor says are, are dark sayings and riddles about the um, about the father the communication between him and the father his revealing the father to the apostles all of this is done in in parables and riddles and and sayings that are hard to understand and what john gill said is that there's two points at which these become clear one of which then they're up in the air to which one really is the infilling of the holy spirit which will teach us all things and lead us into all truth which will plainly show us of the father or the point at which in first John chapter three, verse two, we see him as he is when he comes back and mentioning first John chapter three. It's um, interesting to, to find that in verse one, it says um, about how, how the fathers loved us so much that, that, that he sent his son into the world. Um, I don't exactly know exactly the verse. I didn't got it written down right here, but you go. Well, 12 minutes isn't exactly a long time, but we're going to get that because it's very important to know. And we have to follow the antecedent in first John chapter three says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not, which is the father beloved. Now. Are we the sons of God? Doth not yet what we shall be, but we know that when he, the father, shall appear, we shall be like him, the father, for we shall see him as he is, since the father is the antecedent in this. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he, the father, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. And when I, when, I, when I tell people this, they'll go to verse 8 where it says, and this is the Son of God was manifested, um, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So we have clear language in which the antecedent as the Father is the one who was manifested because the personal, pro, pro, personal pronoun he is used to identify the Father at all points until verse 8 when the Son of God comes. But if the Son of God was manifested and the Father was manifested, that points to a biblical oneness view that the Son is the Father and vice versa, since we believe that they are the same person. Now, this is the uh, mystery that we have to understand uh, in the Godhead, and that is that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Revealed himself, he said in, in verse in John 8, 24, he said, if you don't believe that I am he, ye will die in your sins. And then goes on to, to, to explain that, that, that in verse 27, they didn't understand he was talking about the father. So when they asked him the question, who are you? After he said, I am he. They didn't understand something. And verse 27 says they didn't understand he was talking about the Father. Further proving that point is that, once again, the, the personal pronoun he is applied throughout those verses to him and he who sent me, 
but not applied to the son of God and not applied to the light of the world, not applied to the son of man. He is always applied to the father. You have three persons in that passage, the Pharisees, which are ye, Jesus, which is I or me, and the father, which is he and him. So since that law has to go throughout the whole passage contextually, we have to understand that when he says I am he, he's saying I am the father. And if we go through a Greek standpoint where it just says ego amy and he is added by the translators, he's telling us that he is I am God. And since we have one God, the father, we have to understand that as the son, he is also the father. And, and so... This is the basic of basics of oneness theology that that throughout the New Testament, Jesus is taught to be the Holy Spirit and to be the um, the Father. Oh, and Jesus is also taught to be the Father in First Corinthians ten, verse four, where he says that. Um, that rock was Christ and they followed Moses and they were baptized under the cloud and, and that rock that fed them and gave them drink in the desert. That rock was Christ. And Deuteronomy 32 verse six clarifies that that rock is the father. Is he not thy father? And verse 18 also says of the rock that begat thee. So if that rock was Christ and Peter, I'm sorry, Paul says in first Corinthians that, that that rock was was Christ and the Deuteronomy, Moses says that that rock is the father, then we have to understand that Christ is the father. Also, in John 10.30, Jesus himself says that I and my father are one. Now, we can understand that in, in many senses, but in John 14, 7 through 9, Philip says, Philip asked Jesus, and, and, and Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, and henceforth, you have now known and seen the Father. Who is he talking about? Who have they known and seen at this point in time? Not at a time past or not at a time in the future, but at this point when Jesus was walking with Philip, Jesus said, henceforth, you have seen and known the Father. He's talking about himself. So Jesus is saying, yes, I am the father. How long have you not been with me? You don't know me. You've seen me. You've seen the father. So um, with that, I'm going to concede the rest of my time. And um, we'll get on to uh, the rebuttal. Okay, John, that was just over... Um... 12 minutes, and I know these opening statements and rebuttals do fly by, so I do appreciate it. Uh, Matt, we're going to hand it over to you uh, for an opening statement, uh, roughly 12 minutes. Whenever you're ready, just make sure to unmute yourself, and you're good to go. All right. I'm going to hit my phone here in a second for the 12-minute thing. Okay. Oh, all right. Okay, here we go. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on and uh, for the pleasure and the privilege of being able to defend the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture. And I thank my opponent for being here as well. Um, I hope that he does not uh, take anything I say personally, not against him personally. I believe what he teaches is demonic doctrine. I believe that he's teaching a false God and a false Christ and a false gospel. 
I don't say that with hatred. I say it with pastoral concern. And hopefully during our discussion, uh, that'll become evident um, and that people who are oneness will leave that false doctrine and those who are Trinitarian will be further anchored, anchored excuse me, in the truth. So he said that oneness teaches strict monotheism, so does Trinitarianism. Uh, oneness teaches there's one God the Father, so does Trinitarianism. There's one God the Father, there's one God the Son, there's one God the Holy Spirit. Well, there are not three gods, there's three persons. If he's going to... Um, debate the Trinity and uh, say that's not true, uh, I think that it's appropriate to define the Trinity. Uh, he said he's, uh, before we got on the air here, he said he's watched a lot of my debates and um, he did not uh, deal with how the Trinity's arrived at in many of the debates, how I argue and teach about this, what I say about it. I think it's important that uh, we understand how the doctrine of the Trinity's arrived at. So in a bit, if that's okay with you, I'd like to share the screen so that we can uh, take a look at uh, something I put together on how the Trinity's arrived at. Because the Trinity is a theological doctrine arrived at systematically. It's not refuted by a single verse. Uh, it's a system and it's a theological, logical system. And if the system is incorrect and the Trinity is incorrect, I've said this countless times in my debates with oneness. I've yet to see even one of them address this and deal with this uh, that I remember. Maybe it's happened. I just you know, don't remember everything. But nevertheless, um, uh, John uh, makes uh, logical errors. He tries to cite uh, the fourth law of logic, uh, law of proper inference. John makes a mistake. In that he says, uh, there's one God, the Father, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, but doesn't explain really what that means. And that Jesus is called God, John 20, 28. Therefore, Jesus is the Father. That doesn't work uh, because it's not a proper reference uh, when you say that there's one God, the Father. It doesn't say that there's only one God who is the Father. Uh, but it's probably Trinitarian as well. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, to say that the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit are all one person ignores a lot of scripture. Uh, the Father... Uh, and the son speak to each other. Uh, the son, uh, the father speaks to the son, and the son speaks to the father. You know, uh, we know in John thirteen, uh, excuse me, in Matthew thirteen, Matthew three, uh, at Jesus' baptism, um, the, the Holy Spirit is there, the Father is there, the Father speaks out of heaven, the Son is speaking. We know in uh, Acts twenty, not twenty, X twenty twenty eight, but in um, Luke twenty two forty two, we know that uh, Jesus says, "Not my will, but your will be done." Speaking of the Father, if they're the same person, then they can have one will. Uh, if they're different persons, then they have two or more wills, because wills is by definition necessary in personhood. Which I'm now going to get to. What does it mean to be a person? Because the issue is God one person or three persons. Personhood attributes of personhood uh, are such that an individual who's self-aware is uh, possesses a will can think can speak can say you and yours and me and mine has emotions can relate to one another has reciprocity with others and the such and such this is possessed uh, by the father the son and the holy spirit and we see these happening simultaneously in the scriptures and if you're going to say that jesus is the father then you're going to have to say that jesus is a person and but he was sent from heaven as the Bible says, and he says in John 6, uh, 37 through 40, he was sent from heaven, sent by the Father, he even had glory with the Father before he, he came here to this earth. And yet uh, he's the same person as a father. These kinds of, of statements are problematic for uh, the, um, the doctrine of, of uh, oneness. Now, is it okay if I share my screen now? I'm going to try and get into this. And uh, I will do this. And then you can...
just put it up there on the screen when you're ready. So the doctor of the Trinity, this is on my website. Uh, just go to uh, carm.org, type in Trinity chart, and you'll see this. And the Bible very clearly says that there's only one God in all existence, all place, and all time. Those are the verses there. We agree with that. But what we also see is that the Father is called God, the Son is called God, the Holy Spirit is called God. We see that each one of them is eternal. The Father's eternal, the Son's eternal, the Holy Spirit's eternal. Each one creates, each one indwells, each one is all-knowing, each one is everywhere. Each one searches the heart, resurrects, and sanctifies. But notice this, each one has a will. Each one speaks, each one loves, and each one we can have fellowship with. Now, in oneness theology, the issue here is how do they all manifest from the teaching or the position that there's really only one person, but yet they speak to each other simultaneously. The father speaks about the son while the son's right there, and the son speaks to the father. If there's only one person in the Godhead, that needs to be addressed and it needs to be dealt with. Because if you can't deal with how they are separate as persons, then you don't have a true incarnation. You don't have a true atonement. This is the issue and the nature of what the Trinity is. And I've told, uh, I've debated this many times with oneness people and said, this is how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. One God, each is called God, each is eternal, each creates, etc. Each has a will, each speaks, each loves, each has fellowship, etc. And they speak to each other. Etc. So this is a designation of what we call personhood, where there's only one per. Uh, it's going to be three persons, where the Father is a person, the Son's a person, the Holy Spirit's a person. This is how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. If this is not addressed, then the Trinity doctrine still stands. Okay, you can sh stop sharing the screen. Thanks. Got that. All right. Now, <clears throat> there are problems with the idea of, of of the oneness position. If God is one person. Now, we have to say the word person because in theological constructs, what we're talking about here is, is trini the Trinity, three persons, or God, not a Trinity, not three persons, hence it be one person. Personhood necessitates contemplation of others, fellowship, self-awareness, awareness of others. And we see this uh, manifested along with the attributes of having a will and speaking in the three persons. This is critical. This is important. From the eternal time past, what was the Trinity doing? Having eternal fellowship in the communion and the self-sufficient Trinity in existence. In oneness theology, what was God doing? There is no full manifestation of personhood. There is no reciprocity. There is no expression of love. There is no expression of uh, contemplation. There is no expression of uh, mutuality, reciprocity, like I said. There's nothing. You could not say you and yours and me and mine because those are not actualities in the oneness position from God's existence from eternity past. This is a huge problem inside of oneness. It does not provide the necessary conditions by which we can then understand personhood that we see God revealed as to us in Scripture. Because if God has personhood and the qualities of that, then he needs to express that because that's what his nature is in eternity past. But in oneness, he couldn't do that. And so there's a deficiency in the nature of God in oneness. Furthermore, there's a problem which I call the static mind problem. If the, the uh, oneness position is true and this, their God knows all things eternally, then he knows all things eternally and he cannot 
contemplate because he would already know what he's going to contemplate. If he already knows what he's going to contemplate and knows what he's going to do, then how can he think anything? How can he do anything? How can he decide anything? He would from forever ago have an infinite amount of knowledge that cannot increase or decrease, and he would know himself sufficiently and completely and know whatever it is he might contemplate. So how could he contemplate? Because he already knows what he's going to think about. And so I call it the static mind problem because it lends itself to a problem within the Godhead and an enigma or a paradox or even an antinomy on how we're going to say that God in the oneness position can contemplate, can know, can consider, can uh, etc. Could he always know whatever he would consider and know? But this is solved in the Trinitarian perspective. In the Trinitarian perspective, we have the uh, uh, the mutual contemplation and the perichoresis, the inter. inter dwelling of the persons, say you, yours, me, mine, the fullness of, of the fellowship of the Godhead in personhood is manifested from all eternity. There's no lack and no dependency upon others for the completion of his personhood as oneness would necessitate by the creation of individuals. So uh, I've gone through this quickly. There's also a problem which I'd like to debate with a oneness person sometime, the problem of the one and the many, universals in particulars, and how the oneness position cannot provide the necessary preconditions for intelligibility. That's rather esoteric. It would take a, somebody with a little bit of knowledge and philosophy and logic uh, to discuss that issue, which only the Trinitarian perspective can solve and provide an answer to. But for now, the issue of the personhood of God from the oneness perspective is problematic. The issue of the static mind problem for the oneness person is problematic. Also, there's a problem with the idea of the Trinitarian view being arrived at systematically and the oneness people don't attack or don't deal with, don't examine the system by which the Trinity is arrived at. It's not arrived at by a single verse and it's not refuted by a single verse. It's arrived at systematically. And, and John, uh, with respect, did not address the issues that I have brought up in debate after debate and debate with oneness people on how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. And I'm gonna say this, if any of you Trinity, uh, oneness people see this debate la later you want to debate me, I'm going to be asking you about how the doctor of the Trinity is arrived at. So if you watch this debate, it's going to be on the table for any future debates. How is the doctrine of the Trinity arrived at? What is the doctrine of personhood? What is that doctrine of the Trinity? I will now tell you what that doctrine of the Trinity is. The Trinity is simple. Uh, there's one God in all places, in all time, in all existence. There have been no gods before him. There'll be no gods after him. He is the one and only uncreated necessary being eternally consisting of three simultaneous and distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three persons share the same divine essence, but express different functions in creation. Neither person derives his substance from either or both of the others. In the Trinity are unity and diversity, which are equally basic and mutually dependent upon one another. I could expand on this quite a bit. I can go through a lot more, but that'll suffice for a doctrine or a definition of the Trinity. I could put it in a private text and he can see it as well. Okay, so the Trinity is three persons. The attributes of personhood are manifested in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously. Simultaneous manifestations of personhood means three simultaneous persons. This is how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. And we'll get into the issues of how the Father and the Son relate to each other, who are their persons in the cross-examination, and hopefully we'll show more of the problems in the oneness position. And let's see, I'm going to go on 12 seconds time, 12 seconds left. All right. Perfect timing there, uh, Matt. Thank you so much for the concluding statement. Let me restart the timer. Um, that concludes the opening statements, 12 minutes. We're now moving into the uh, eight minute uninterrupted rebuttal. So John, whenever you're ready, um, let me just unmute you. And actually it looks like you got to unmute yourself. 
I'll let the audience know. Fantastic questions coming in. I'm all caught up. Just make sure you're tagging me at Standing for Truth. John, whenever you're ready, you've got eight minutes for a rebuttal. Go ahead. All right. Well, um, in in the uh, first part of his opening statement, he uh, mentioned the fact that uh, just because it says that um, we have one God, the Father, and Jesus is called God in John 20, 28, doesn't mean that Jesus is the Father. And he failed to mention the connection or the harmony between those two specific verses. And I understand why, because it says that we have one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. And he failed to mention that. But it also says in John 20, 28, that Jesus is correctly identified by Thomas as both Lord and God. And if we only have one Lord and one God, and Jesus is both Lord and God, then he must be both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he mentions the communication that Jesus had with the Father. And I argue um, that, that, that this was um, done with teaching us, um, teaching us about prayer, teaching us um, about who the Father is from an earthly standpoint. Um, as John 16, 25 says that he, he showed us the Father um, in figurative language, the NASB would say. Uh, John Gills clarifies it's more of a dark sayings and riddles. So the riddle of who the Father is, and we understand that Jesus himself is God. If you strip the flesh off of Jesus, behind Jesus is, is God the Father. That's, that's who's in Jesus. And it says inseparable as my spirit is from me. And so that's what um, he doesn't understand with the oneness theology. Now, where he does claim, I want to get into this, that um, a person only has one will. Now, this is grossly incorrect. In Romans chapter 7, verse 17 through 20, we find that the, the mind and the flesh are at war with one another. Paul says, this is, and I quote, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. But then says that that's not him. That's sin that dwelleth in him. But he calls it me. So when he says that we have one will, that is very, very incorrect. We have the will of the flesh and the will of the spirit. And they are at war against each other. And the Bible is clear on this. Um, so just as Jesus said, not my will be done, but your will be done. He's talking about his will of the flesh. Now, what you have to understand here is, is that what is going on is called divine humility. And from a oneness perspective, this is using uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where uh, Jesus humbled himself. So he is God, and he humbled himself to become a man. Now, at any point in time, Jesus on this earth was God, fully God, and could call legions of angels down. He said, I am he, and guards fell backward. I mean, these are, these are, these are proof that he is not just a mere human. No, who is he? He is God with us. So 
at, at any point in time, God acknowledged, I'm hungry. My flesh. Now, he quotes John 6, 37, you know, and he says in John 6, 37, that, that, that is not my will, but your will be done. So when we go to John 6, we have to understand that Jesus is, is talking about himself. And he is the bread of life from heaven. So here is the figurative language that John 16, 25 tells us and how he's teaching us. He, he says that I am come down from heaven. He says, I am the bread of life, the bread that come down from heaven. So what is this bread? Jesus clarifies it. If we continue on to verse 51 in John chapter 6, we find clearly that the bread Jesus is talking about is the flesh, his flesh. So he says, I am the bread. I came down from heaven, the flesh of God that came down from heaven. God prepared this flesh for himself. And so that's what we have to understand, that, that, that God humbled himself and shows us exactly who he is through his word. And we have um, biblical examples of, of, of of these are biblical examples of God taking the counsel of his own will when the son talks with the father and, 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 and when the word communicates with, with God, uh, Ephesians one eleven says that God clearly takes, he takes the counsel of his own will in Genesis one twenty six when he says it at the tower of Babel, let us, let us, any plurality in God is, is, is the taking the counsel of his own will. And and so is this a biblical? Yes. And he hasn't proven not once with Bible verses or scripture that what I'm saying is not biblical. And I'm proving that it is biblical. And he is using terminology and, and um, tradition from Trinitarians uh, that they've had, what, 1700 years to develop against. Um, oneness and against Arians, and and so of course, if you use a a a the Trinitarian tradition and consider that at the same level as canon, then yeah, the Trinity is 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 correct. But see, you have to uh, toss out the traditions that you've been taught. These traditions of old are false, and and from the modalist. Uh, that's preached the truth back in the second century with Praxius against Tertullian. We got to understand how the Trinity came about. The Trinity came about in violence and excommunication from the church and the writings of Praxius and the modalists were all burned. But at first, the general run of the mill Christian was modalist who believed that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit until the Catholic Church or the original um, bishops who eventually put the Catholic Church violently got rid of them. So um, as saying that the Trinity is a biblical um, um, alternative to, to the original church of modalism from the first and second centuries, it's just not, it's just not there in the Bible. There's no God, the son. He said, of course we have one God, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. And no, it doesn't say we have one God, the son it doesn't say we have one God, the Holy spirit. It says we have one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Malachi 2.10 says, seconds. have we not all one God? 30 seconds? Yes. Yep. We have not one God, there's not one Father created. We not all have one Father, there's not one God created us all. Um, in in um, 
I believe it's Ephesians 4, 6. We have one God and Father of all. And John 17, 3, Jesus. So this is what he says. If there's a God the Son or a God the Holy Spirit, and they are not God the Father, Jesus says God the Father is the only true God. They must be false gods if they are not God the Father. So that is how it doesn't harmonize with the totality of Scripture. The Trinity just doesn't harmonize like oneness does. Okay. That is eight minutes. Um, thank you, John. Slightly over, about 10 seconds over. Matt will give you equal time. Let's say eight minutes and 10 seconds. You're easy going, brother. Appreciate it. Um, great debate so far. Lots of great questions from the audience and, and a fantastic uh, live chat in terms of the audience as well. So, Matt, we're going to hand it over to you now for your uh, eight-minute rebuttal. Whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. All right. And set go on oh, my, my phone. There we go. Well, all right. He said, I failed to produce an answer to the issue of 1 Corinthians 8, 6, one God, the Father. No, I did. I, in my opening statement, I addressed that there's one God, the Father, and there's also one God, the Son, and one God, the Holy Spirit, three persons, not three gods. So I did address that. Um, uh, let's see. It's regarding the communication of Jesus with the Father. We're going to be getting into that later uh, because in the cross-examination, I'm going to ask him about personhood of the Father, personhood of the Son, how they can communicate, etc. He did go to John 16, 25, figurative speech usage. Jesus did speak figuratively sometimes and literally other times. I agree. When we get to the issue, um, we'll probably get into John 6, uh, 37 through 40, some other verses. We'll see how it goes. Uh, if he's able to deal with the text. Um, you know, we have all kinds of questions from what he's saying. If Jesus is the Father, then why does he speak to the Father as if the Father is himself? It doesn't make sense. He says the Trinity doesn't make sense because it can't answer these questions. Uh, well, there's questions that oneness uh, theology necessitates that cannot be answered logically. It cannot answer them coherently. And we are here to argue logically and coherently. And if we're not going to argue logically and coherently from Scripture, then there's no real sense uh, of a debate that's to be had. Now, he did say uh, that a person has only one will. I, I'm, I'm glad he said that. I'll remember that. That's good. However, when he went to Romans 7, 18 through 25, and Paul is talking about the sin he doesn't want to commit, and he does the things he doesn't want to do and doesn't do what he should do. And then to say that the mind and the flesh are, uh, are personified as having wills, uh, that is a figurative usage, obviously, because uh, his own flesh doesn't have a will separate from Paul's other will. You would have to have then two persons in the body of of, um, of Paul if you were to take it literally for the idea that the flesh has a will. And what you did was you made the mistake of saying, well, there's a will in a figurative sense, and then there's a will in a literal sense, which is what I'm talking about. And then you say in a figurative sense, that's what it means in the literal sense, but that's not the case. It's a it's a mistake you made, and you need to understand and, and focus on the context. We talk about wills in the nature of personhood. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are persons. Uh, and from your perspective, God, your one person God, is a person. And so he will therefore have one will as your person. Uh, but that's not to say that uh, that Paul has a flesh that has its own will, hence is a person. And then he has another internal will, which is another person by logical necessity from that frame of logic. And I think you missed that. And uh, in so doing, misrepresented my position, what was there. Um, and so uh, just a slight correction, you mistook John 637 for Luke uh, 2242, uh, not my will, but your will be done. This in Luke 2242, Jesus designates his will as separate from the will of the father in this case. 
and he doesn't want to go through it. Now, why is that the case? Well, we can talk about the communicatio idiomatum with the relationship of the two natures of Christ uh, in the one person, the hypostatic union, and how the natures are expressed in the one person. It's an interesting discussion. I like going through that. Maybe we can do it sometime tonight or tomorrow, another time. Who knows? Um, he said that the flesh of God came down from heaven. <sighs> Wrong. There was no flesh in heaven. Uh, no, uh, Jesus is is uh, God in flesh. You can go to John 1, 1 and verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It became flesh, so it cannot be a sense that the flesh came down from heaven. Now, maybe I'm just misunderstanding, and that's certainly possible. Uh, maybe he just misspoke. That's certainly possible. You can offer a correction of that later on. But to say that there was flesh in heaven previously uh, doesn't work. To say it was metaphorically in heaven doesn't work, because Jesus says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 6, 36. 39 talks about this. Um, <clears throat> I would not make uh, sense to say in any way, shape, or form that the flesh came out of and out, out of heaven if the flesh is having a will. Because in the different ones I've talked to, we'll find out more later. Different ones I've talked to, they seem to be Nestorian. They have the the uh, the Father who's in the body of, of Jesus, and the the flesh has a will, and the body has or the the Father has a will, and hence two wills in the one person. Uh, at the same time, not dithelitism, uh, but, a, uh, it, well, uh, yeah, we'll get into that. And he went to Ephesians 1.11, um, after the counsel of his will, you have to understand, and, and I don't mean, try, I really don't mean this in any condescending way, I don't, uh, but maybe uh, you might want to study the issue of divine simplicity as it relates to the perichoresis. Divine simplicity is the teaching that God is one divine substance, one divine thing, not three parts. And the perichoresis is the teaching that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are eternal persons in the one being, uh, that one divine simple uh, being, uh, interdwell each other. And in such, though they have personhood by themselves and in and of themselves, not deriving their essence or nature from the others, but are eternally in that form of the divine uh, simplicity, then the perichoretic relationship, then they have the interdwelling of each, and there's only one mind, one will. And uh, there's some mystery to that, but it's certainly not uh, illogical at all. To say, <clears throat> excuse me, you need to study the divine simplicity and perichoresis, I would say. I think it'd make for a better debate. Uh, I'd like to discuss those sometimes in relationship to uh, oneness. It's interesting uh, how uh, John, which I like that name, John. You know, it's a good name. It's interesting how uh, John lumped oneness with Arianism. I kind of uh, enjoyed that. He says the Trinitarians have had 13, 1,700 years uh, to work against oneness and Arianism. I don't think I hope he doesn't think Arians are Christians, uh, but that's another topic altogether. And um, so let me just say this. To say that the doctrine of the Trinity is based on tradition, uh, that ignores the representative, representative information I gave on the screen. Uh, you'll notice, ladies and gentlemen, that he did not address anything that I said is tantamount and necessary to the arrival of the doctor of the trinity i showed that screen shared that trinity chart showed how it was pointed to the scriptures here it is lots of scriptures right there can't go through every one of them in an opening statement showed where it is where you can find it on this on the uh, website you can go check it out for yourself that's how the doctor of the trinity's arrived at forget catholicism forget tertullian forget tr trinity excuse me tradition forget all of that 
my question here, at the, you know, as I'm going to close up my, my rebuttal here, is why is it if I were to state in my opening statement that this chart needs to be addressed by oneness, and that I've said it before in different debates, that they don't address it, and this is how the doctor of the Trinity has arrived at, you'd think it'd be a good opportunity to, to tackle it then. But he didn't. He did not, not deal with the issue that I raised on how the doctor of the Trinity has arrived at. And if he cannot refute this, this approach, the systematic approach as laid out in that table, then the doctor of the Trinity stands firm and strong. And his ideas about Jesus and the Father being the one are not, uh, does not refute the doctor of the Trinity at all. I can answer those issues with the father and son relationship. And so uh, without addressing that chart, without addressing how the doctor of the Trinity has arrived at, then the doctor of the Trinity has not been refuted by him. And uh, we'll get into more of that later. And I'm going to do this again at 12 seconds on my timer. Ready, set, go. <laughs> oh, much appreciated, uh, Matt. John and Matt, that concludes the opening statements and the rebuttals. Thank you, gentlemen, for a great debate so far. We're now moving into everybody's favorite part of the debate, the cross-examination. So we've got 40 minutes on the clock. Uh, we are going to break it up into two segments, 20 minutes each. Uh, Matt just ended with his eight-minute rebuttal. So, uh, John, we're going to allow you to uh, lead the way for the first 20 minutes, then Matt can lead the way for the next 20 minutes. So, uh, John, whenever you're ready, okay. and gentlemen, um, in general, the floor is yours. All right. So, uh, first, uh, first and foremost, I'm going to center my my question around. Uh, let's uh, John 14, verse 17 and 18, where Jesus says he'll send uh, another comforter. I'm having trouble understanding you. I'm sorry. I'm straining to hear you. It's bad sound. Can you hear me? Yeah, it was pretty echoey back there in a second. Go ahead. Maybe it was on my end. I'm sorry. I apologize. In John 14, 17 through 18. Okay. We, is it better? Yes, thank you. So I apologize. Um, yeah. Jesus tells us he's going to send us another comforter, another one, in which one could safely assume is not um, himself, but another person. But then it clarifies it. And this is why I think John 16, 25 applies to it. Uh, he clarifies that, that the, this comforter dwells with them currently and shall be in them and says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, how, how does this, in your opinion, not teach that Jesus is the Holy Spirit? Because he said he would send the comforter. He's not sending himself. And then what he clarifies, so in, in verse 17, at the end of verse 17, and in verse 18. Well, that is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. It doesn't say me. It says him, but you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Right. Well, so is he not saying I? Yeah, I will come to you. And is he saying that he's going to come to you in the Holy Spirit? Or is he saying that he's going to come to you later? Is he going to say that he's going to come to you in John 14, 23, when he says, I and the Father will make our abode in you? Well, he says that we will, but we will make our abode in you. But then in other places, that, that abode is called the Spirit. Like in um, Galatians 4, 4 through 6, it's called the Spirit of the Son that cries out, Abba, Father. 
Is, is, is that the Holy Spirit? It's good Trinitarian theology. We would expect that they would speak as one and in a plurality as well. Perfectly consistent. So I, I'm, I must ask this, this very obvious question. You believe in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, that the Son and the Spirit of the Son are the second and third persons of the Trinity? The Son and the Spirit of the Son, but when the fullness of the God came, born of a virgin under the law, so you dream under the law, might receive the God. forth the Son, and then he sent forth the Spirit of the Son. Now, would you, would you believe that those are two different persons of the Trinity? Well, I was going to continue to read it, if I could look at the context, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, crying. yeah, it's a Spirit of the Jesus, right? That's, that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, so... Uh, the, the obvious question is, is, is how is the spirit of the son and the son two different persons when the spirit of, let's say, Matt Slick and Matt Slick are together one person? We don't look at that here as a definition of what personhood is or how it's arrived at from a verse like this. But it is consistent with Trinitarianism to say that the spirit of the son is sent by the son. I believe it is. Mm hmm. You can say it from a verse like this, or you could even say it from, I mean, the consistency of the New Testament that teaches Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit in Philippians 1.19. How would you, uh, how would the Trinity address that, that we have uh, salvation through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ? That's the supply of the Spirit, which, as to the church, is the Holy Spirit, um, and, and names the Holy Spirit Jesus Christ. Isn't that more of a oneness verse? No. So why does it why does the Bible name the Holy Spirit Jesus Christ? Where does it name the Holy Spirit Jesus Christ? Oh, sorry, you're supposed to cross-examine me. It doesn't say, do, do that. You're in Philippians you 119. Are, you're inferring that it does. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So it's the Holy Spirit of Jesus. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit is Jesus. You got to be careful. You don't make exegetical errors and get into false theology. And, and that's what I'm asking you. How is, how is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, a different person from Jesus Christ? Well, uh, we go through the doctrine of the Trinity which I put on the chart of there on the screen. And this is how we arrive at the doctrine of the Trinity, that they're separate persons. I, yeah, that's how it's done. So you don't have a biblical scripture. You just have tradition. Uh, I'm, I'm rather surprised that uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe you didn't see the chart that I brought up there to show how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. Well, I mean, I understand the, the economic and the ontological trinity. Um, but what I don't understand is how you can distinguish between two persons that are clearly not distinguished in Scripture. Well, it's your opinion they're not distinguished, but we would have to discuss what personhood is and how we might distinguish them. Okay. Well, I mean, okay. So, well, let's let's move on from that. Um, one thing you didn't answer, and from my opening statement, I would like to ask you about directly here, 
is uh, that one is teaches that Christ is the Father from 1 Corinthians 10, 4. That rock was Christ. I'm sure you've came across that before. And Deuteronomy 32, 6 and 18, both would say um, that the rock is the father of the rock that begat you in verse 18. Um, Does that teach that Christ is the father? And if it doesn't, what father does that teach that Christ is? You're asking a multifaceted question over several verses. So I don't know how much time you want me to spend without interruption to be able to answer your question. So I can start and try and answer it. But you went to Deuteronomy 32.6, which I'm quite familiar with, and speaks of the Father, speaks uh, is the rock. But in 1 Corinthians 10.4, the rock that followed them was Christ. Right, which is right. a spiritual rock that followed them, not a physical stationary rock. Yes, it's called it's Petra in the Greek cross reference out of another verse with Catholicism. So we would expect that the manifestation of God in the Old Testament would be similar to that in the New Testament. This does not refute the Trinity. It designates the similarity in the nature and the essence of the members of the Godhead. Not a problem at all. I mean, it, it is when it clearly says that Christ is the father and you don't say he is. Where does it say Christ is the Father? I'm oh, sorry, that's the, what's across examine me. The, the, okay, but then let me just ask you some questions. Does First Corinthians ten four say that that rock that we're talking about in the Old Testament with Moses, that rock was Christ? It says the rock that followed them was Christ. Yes, the rock that followed them was Christ. A uh -huh. spiritual rock, a spiritual rock. Um, and does Deuteronomy thirty two? You could say verses one through six talk about how his doctrine drops like dew from the sky. The spiritual, a, 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 the rock is a, a God of justice and truth. Is he not thy father? Verse six says, is he not thy father? You're talking about the same rock that Paul is talking about. Well, what it says here in Deuteronomy 32, six, do you thus repay the Lord? You foolish and unwise people is not he your father was bought you. Has he not made you and established you? Yeah. Right. So I don't see in the verse where it's saying that the father is the rock. He, it says, is he not thy father? He's talking about it earlier up. If you read verses one through six, it says um, the rock, a God of truth and justice, um, righteousness, he Right. So the rock would be a designation of the mighty majesty of God. And that was related to Jesus by Paul in first Corinthians 10. So when they were being followed, they were being followed by that rock who is Christ. But Christ is the anointed one who did not become flesh until 2000, well, sometime later. So what he's doing is designating the deity of Christ in relationship to the rock of the Old Testament. Right, uh, which which that rock is called the Father. Um, well, and that's the point I'm trying to make that you're avoiding. Um, give ear, O heavens, it says, uh, the, okay, verse four, he is the rock. His work is perfect. 
for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves, their spot is not the spot of his children, they are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus requit the Lord, O foolish people and wise? Is he not thy father? So this is saying that the rock is their father. And Paul is saying that this rock that followed them, the spiritual rock, is Christ. It says it's a spiritual rock. Does it say it was actually the father? No, no, no. Deuteronomy said it was the father. That's yes. what I, I keep trying yes. to point out. First Corinthians 10.4 says it's a spiritual rock. It wasn't right. a literal rock any more than the rock that followed them, who's called the rock in the desert there was literal. It's simply a reference to the Father and Jesus, who represents the Father, we know that, the New Testament in Hebrews 1.3, could be and then can be called that rock. But he is not the Father because he speaks to the Father. So that's that would be your answer. Okay, clearly it says he's the Father. But let's let's move on. Um, do you believe the one? Okay, you believe that the one God nature that is shared by the three persons of the Trinity, um, whether economically or ontologically, has self awareness distinct from the three members of the Trinity. Could you repeat that? There's a couple of words I didn't quite get. Do you believe the one God nature that is shared by the three persons of the Trinity has self-awareness distinct from the three persons of the Trinity? Distinct. I'm writing it down from the three persons of the, of the Trinity, right? Uh, right. So of the Trinity, the one God nature that is shared by the three persons has self-awareness distinct from the three persons of the trinity i don't understand the statement i don't understand the question it doesn't seem like i guess um you wouldn't say there are four in the trinity there are four centers of consciousness the god nature the one god the father and and then there's that is shared by how, how does this okay so i get how the trinity works there's the god and the that is shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They all share of the one God nature. Now, is that one nature, God, self-aware, distinct from the other three persons of the Trinity? To ask if a nature is self-aware is uh, a non sequitur. Uh, the nature of God who is self-aware is that he is divine. To say is the nature itself self-aware is doesn't make any sense so in a sense it would be like the one human nature shared amongst over seven billion humans human. uh, that that nature is not self-aware either obviously we're, we're different humans i'm just trying to gather some some groundwork here so you're saying you're distinguishing human nature humans are self-aware normally right. speaking right normally speaking right but in the same way that you know, you, I, you, Donnie, and I both shared, we all three share human nature. We're we're all humans. That would be the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all share God nature. Is that how how you would see it? Yeah, the ontological Trinity, which you said you understand, is that the three persons all share the same divine essence. Now, ontologically, I guess we could say, how is if if um if human if so 
we'll, we'll, we'll ask from an ontological standpoint. If human nature shared by 7 billion humans or 7 billion persons gives us 7 billion humans, how does the God nature shared by three persons not give us three gods ontologically? Because the nature of God is different than the nature of humans. I mean, since we're made after his image, you're, you're going to have to give a biblical example of how we're not. I didn't say that. I said they were different. We're made in the communicable attributes of God. There's communicable and incommunicable, but God's nature is different than us. He's completely different than we are. He is one Not person. really, not biblically. Yes, he is. He's vastly different than us. I mean, we are made after his image. So God is, God is omnipotent. We are not. God is omniscient. Look, we are not. God is omnipresent. We are not. He's vastly different in nature than us. He is divine. We are not. Right. I get the attributes and the differences in power, but you you do understand the Bible talks about how the world is out of whack right now. It's out of foundation. We weren't meant to die like princes of the earth. We were meant to live as gods with God, children of God. But now, now we were made in his image. That's why I'm just referencing where Jesus called us all gods. Are you not gods? But you will die like princes of the earth. So, so, uh, the, the fundamentals of, of, of the earth is out of whack because of sin. So, and I get that, but it still doesn't explain how we are different. Uh, I would say spiritually, like if we're made in God's image, then, then, then we should share the, the same basic principles that God would share. If, if he has a nature, that there are three persons that share that and, nature. And John, I just want to make sure you're getting a question in there too for the last five okay. minutes. Okay, sorry. Um, I guess I guess you did give your answer. Um, hmm. I guess I would like to ask in First John chapter five or chapter three, verses one through five, we find that the verse one mentions the father and as the antecedent to the personal pronoun he all throughout that would tell us that in verse five that the father was manifested to take away our sins. Um, how does that fit into Trinity perspective? Um since that's very, very oneness. That would take me 30 seconds to read it and then exegete it to see the context. I don't know if you want to grant me that time or not. Go ahead. It clearly. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and is appeared to has not appeared to as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Uh, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Okay. So are you saying, I'm not sure what you're saying out of the text. Uh, that the father in verse one is the antecedent for the personal pronoun he. 
which if you follow that all the way to verse 5, it says he, the Father, was manifested, and in him is the Son. No, it says the Father bestowed on us that he gave us the Son, and the Son is the one who's manifested. Well, where is that at in the, the first five verses? Well, we know it from other places in Scripture. But what you have here, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness, and lawlessness That's is not sin. Exodus. What he's doing there is causing a shift in the topic of what's going on about sin. And then he says he appeared in order to take away sin. So if you're going to say that the antecedent of he goes back to the verse previous to the break in the thought, well, then that's on you to demonstrate that that is the proper case. But I just did. Um, well, you say you did. Well, the, the Bible clearly divides. He has got to belong to somebody. And the only person that was mentioned thus far was the father. We know he doesn't belong to us. We weren't manifested. There's no, there's not, you know, no sin in us. We're full of sin. So that he has to be to God. And the only God so far that was mentioned is the Father. And which, I mean, which brings me to, I guess, one of my last questions is, is you say that, that we have one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and I, I want to challenge you to, to find that for me somewhere in Scripture. Uh, not really find it, but. I guess you can't really find it, but you can explain to me why Paul didn't mention that first Corinthians verse eight, six, or why the new Testament in general doesn't mention the fact that we have one God, the father, son, and the Holy spirit. But when it talks about one God, it only mentions the father. Why does it do that? Okay. Let's give Matt the last 30 seconds of the cross to answer that. And then we'll, we'll change it up. Go ahead, Matt. Well, I'm not sure I understood the question because it was multifaceted parts of the question. I'm listening to each part, and then each time you say something, you're talking about some different topic, and you're kind of blending them. I don't see the blend. Throughout, so the, throughout the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, um, whenever the one God is mentioned, it is always the Father. Why is that? Why does it not mention the Son and the Holy Spirit when it mentions the one God? I would have to verify that your statement is true by looking and seeing if every time the term one God occurs, that it's in reference only to the Father. I have to look to see that's true before I even comment. Okay, gentlemen, that is the first 20 minutes of the discussion slash cross-examination. Very fun, very engaging so far. So now we are going to hand it to Matt. Uh, Matt Slick, you have uh, the next 20 minutes to lead the way asking questions. Go ahead. All right, let me get my phone going here. All right. Um, can you define for me person, what it means to be person? Um, yes, what it means to be a person is, well, when I define person, I define it in its root word, in its Latin form, is persona. We're all characters, and and Matt's gonna play. So, um, uh, person doesn't exactly, in its root form, doesn't exactly mean, you know, distinguishable like centers of consciousness. But person from its root actually means a mask. Okay, I'm asking but, you to define person. Can you define person for me? Okay. Well, I would define person as a center of consciousness that um, 
makes decisions. Do you, would you agree that persons, personhood entails having a will, can think, can speak, recognizes others, recognizes themselves, has emotions, et cetera? Yeah, actually, um, I wanted okay. to correct you from earlier. Uh, I, I, I do believe there's more than one will. I clarified that. Um, I, I did say that- So the uh, answer is yes? The answer is yes about the attributes of personhood, okay. A person can have more than one will, yes. People have more than one will. Um, when God was in heaven, was he one person? When God's in heaven, he's one person, yes. Okay. Is Jesus also a person? Jesus is a person. Okay. Does Jesus have two natures? Yes, Jesus has two natures. Does, what natures are those? Spirit and flesh, human and divine. Okay, human and divine. Does each nature have its own will? Um. Yes. So that's but two wills. Okay. The answer is yes. So that's called dithelitism, which is fine. So the nature of the human and the nature of the divine are each a will. You said that's two consciousnesses, and you said that's two no, persons. I didn't yes, say you did. Yes, you did. You said that that uh, uh, that personhood is a center of consciousness. You said that. So yeah. and I asked you, does the personhood have the attributes of a will? You said yes. Therefore, if you're going to say that Jesus has a human will and a divine will because he has a human nature and a divine nature that necessitates to have wills, then isn't that two persons by your definition? No, I never said that. I said you keep you keep thinking that I keep saying that more one person can have more than one will. And I've been trying to clarify that with you this entire time. Uh, we have the will of the flesh and the will of the spirit that's um, clearly seen in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, where he, okay. when you start, you're talking about poetic wills and things like that. You know, I can get into the theological aspect. Real Hold will, on. the will of our flesh as opposed to the will of our spirit. Is your flesh, flesh self-aware? Is my flesh self-aware? No, that belongs to the center of consciousness. So your flesh is not self-aware. So does your flesh have an actual will? Yes, it has a will. It, 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 and so it has a it, will, but it's not self-aware. How do you have something that has a will, but also not self-aware? And we're talking about the person and humans. How is that possible? It's, well, it's biblical in the fact that, that um, we have clear examples from Romans chapter 7 where Paul uh, says that this is sin in him that does things. So this sin actually does things that he doesn't want it to do. Oh, so but there's we another. Know, we know now. Hold on. We do know that, that, that that's just us choosing to sin. So the self-awareness and the decision-making process of that sin that's John. in him that isn't him is still him. John. It's just teaching, two wills yeah, in one you're, person. You're, yeah, you're mixing the definition of will and a personification, an anthropomorphism versus in the will and the definition of personhood. And so I'm talking about the latter and you keep going to the former and you shouldn't do that. You need to stick with the definition I've offered you because you're not doing that. You're, you're ignoring the definition I gave and you're going to something else and a personification of something that doesn't have self-awareness and actuality. So that's, that's a mistake. I'm calling you on that. Personhood is having- I don't understand having, how I'm doing that, but- well, we can review this later and you can see that you're saying that the flesh has its own will, but we're talking about will as, in, as you said, a center of consciousness that a person. No, I, I see that you, 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 
Let me Miss finish, please. Me. Let me finish. Yeah, John, I just, I just said, want to make sure that there's no crosstalk. Go ahead, Matt. You said that a, that a person has a center of consciousness. You also said a person has a will. Therefore, a center of consciousness and a will are necessitated by each other. If you're going to say that the flesh has its own will, then you're implying it has its own center of consciousness. But if you say, no, it does not do that, then you're, what you're doing is talking about personification. But we're not talking about personification. We're talking about personhood, which is why you're off, off track. Now, let me ask you, does Jesus, is he a person right now? Yes. He's a person right now. Okay, good. And he's in heaven? Yes. So, okay. When Jesus was on earth, was he a person? Yes. And when he spoke to the Father in heaven, was he talking to himself? Yes. So how could he talk to himself, who is a person on earth, if you said that, that God in heaven was a person? That's two persons. You asked me, is Jesus in heaven? I said, yes. So I'm going to answer that. You see, Jesus can talk to himself in a different space, in a different time, and anything like that, because of the fact that he is not limited by space or time, and he is uh, omnipresent, omniscient. See, by, 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 by dividing God up into three persons, you're robbing him of his omnipresence. And okay, his hold, on, hold on. Okay. So is God a person before the incarnation? No, no, no. You don't, no, I'm, no, don't say that because you don't know what it means to be limited by space and time. Just people talk about space and time. They don't understand what those concepts are. You know, A theory of time, B theory of time. You want to say God's inside or outside. You open a can of worms. I'm just not going to get into it. So the thing is, was God the Father, your God, God the Father before the incarnation, was he a person? Yes. When Jesus was on earth, was he a person? Yes. Did Jesus have two natures? Jesus had two natures. Okay. Does he have two natures now? Uh, yes. So is God the Father, who is a person without two natures, the same as Jesus, the person with two natures? Are they the same? What do you mean God the Father doesn't have two natures? I clearly demonstrate that God the Father before, was manifested into the flesh. Before the incarnation, God the Father was a person. He only had one nature, not a human nature, Right. Right. So we were unsavable. Right. So, Jesus, so Jesus has two natures, a divine and a human. Now he's in heaven. So is God the Father, the who has had one nature, the same as Jesus, who has two natures? Now, at the incarnation is where God took on. Even a Trinitarian would believe that at the incarnation is when God took on his human nature. I asked, is God the Father before the incarnation the same person as the Son who's one person with two natures. Are they the same person? They are the same person. They can't be the same person because, How can because the attributes of both natures ascribe to the single person in incarnation. That means the attributes of both natures is called the communicatio idiomatum, which only exists in the person of Christ. It did not exist in the person of the Father. He did not possess those extra attributes of the other natures that were ascribed to the one person. So therefore, he cannot be the same person. It's a simple issue of logic. You don't understand that. No, I, I understand that. I, but see, that, that's another one of those traditions I'm talking about. you got to understand biblically. It's not, a, it's not a tradition. It's not a tradition. It's an issue of the logic and the, and the nature and identity. Of. And you were unable to refute. 
Nope. The person of the father did not have the characteristics attributed to him of human nature. The person of the son does. That means he has those attributes of personhood, of humanity in his personhood. They're not the same person. They cannot be because then you'd have the person of the father changing his nature and essence into this person of the son, which you can't have. Why is the father called the spirit of Christ in first Peter and second? Peter? I, I'm asking the questions. So All now right. when Jesus says in John 16, 28, he says, John 6 and 28, I came forth from the Father. Who's the I? The, the Son, Jesus. So G the Son was with the Father? Yes, he was with the Father. The so the, the Son existed with the Father at the same time? Yes. That's two persons. Because you said the Not Son is a person. The son and you, is said, the you said the That's Son was a person. You said, oh, the right. son was, right. you said the son was a person. You said the father was a person. So if the son existed with the father, because you said he came from the father, that means he was there with the father. Uh, you think I could have a little more time than you've been giving me to answer the questions? I don't know. It just depends <laughs> if, if your answers are on point. Okay. Um, all right. Um, so what, what you're, you're – Failing to understand from the oneness side, you're misrepresenting the oneness position, is that the Son is the flesh of the Father, is the visible image of the Father, and, and that they're as one as you and your spirit are. Okay. And that is, that's what um, the, the Bible teaches, that's what oneness teaches, that, that, that they're one. So and what Jesus says... Jesus says in John 17, 5, now, Father, glorify me with together with yourself, with the glory I had with you. Who's the I? The I is the son. The son had with you. Who's the you? The father. So the son had glory with the father. Before the world was. Yeah. Yes. So is that the same person? They are the same person. So what we've got to understand from this verse is is that we it is speaking in the same way that revelation says that he was slain from the foundation of the world he wasn't literally slain from the foundation of the world he was slain in ad 33 ish but, yes, but predestination and, and election let's go to john 6 37 and 40. he says uh verse 38 for i have come down from heaven who's the i that's jesus that's Jesus? Okay. Yeah. Jesus came down from heaven not to do my own will. Who's the my? That's that's Jesus in his flesh. That's the son. Okay. But the will of him, who's the him? That's the father, which is okay. the spirit of Christ. Who, who sent me? That's the son, Jesus? Right. Okay. So what you're saying is I, Jesus, came down from heaven, but Jesus, by definition, has two natures. Did he have two natures in heaven? Uh, Jesus, he has two natures of the incarnation. Did Jesus have two natures in heaven? It, de it depends. I mean, he, you talk about before or after the resurrection. Did Jesus have two natures in heaven before the incarnation? No. Okay. So Jesus has two natures by definition. And you said here, for I, Jesus, that means he has two natures, divine and human, came down from heaven. How could he come down from heaven with two natures? Because he, as he said, 
in John 6, 37, which I know you're from very familiar with, I came down from heaven, and he's talking about how he is the bread of life. The bread that he will give to the world is his flesh. So we have to understand that if the bread came down from heaven, and he equates the bread with his flesh, that means flesh came down from heaven. That's not what he's talking about here. So what he must he says, take it metaphorically, I, and not says, literally. He says, I, Jesus, whom you say is one person with two natures have come down from heaven, but that's not possible because Jesus has two natures only at the incarnation. But here your, your position would have to be that he had those two natures in heaven. Well, that's what you say. My position would have to be now, if it is after the incarnation, then the father in heaven is the spirit. That dwells not, within the son. But we're see, not talking about after the incarnation. Jesus also he says, said that we. Hold on. That when he was talking about the apostles, the apostles were from above as well. Okay. Stick with this text instead of going all over the place. What it says here is, I, Jesus, you say that's Jesus, the person of Christ. You say he's a person with two mm -hmm. natures. You're saying that Jesus has come down from heaven from your pers perspective. You're saying then that he came down from heaven. I'm asking you. Did he have a fleshly will and a body of flesh and bones in heaven before he came down? No. What? I'm sorry. I didn't hear no, that. not before no, the incarnation. No. Okay. So, so he was there, not as the person Jesus, but as the pre-incarnate Christ in heaven with the Father, right? Because he's sent by the Father, right? Yeah. He, well, he's the Father. Now, he's sent by the Father. If I send you someplace, we're not the same person. If I send my wife to the store, we're not the same person. For one person to send another designates a differentiation between their personhood. He doesn't you don't send yourself. You send another. He says, I came down from heaven. I was sent by the Father. And the I is the person of Jesus who sent by the Father who you said is another person. He taught us in these earthly riddles because we wouldn't understand the heavenly things. And he told us that plainly. He did not teach us plainly of the Father. So in a figurative sense, he could be sending himself. Now, suddenly it's what, figurative. Okay, can, let's go to John 14, 23 and see if this is figurative also. If anyone loves me, Jesus says, he will keep my word and the Father will love him and we will come and make our abode with him. Is the indwelling of the Father and the Son literal in us? Yes, it's called the Holy Spirit. I'm actually glad you asked this question. So, we will make our so, abode in him. That is the Spirit of the Son, which if it also includes the Father, that's one person in them crying out, Abba, Father. Who's the we? The we, that's the Spirit and the, the glorified flesh of Jesus Christ. We are made to drink. We are one wait, wait, body wait, 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 and wait. one spirit. So the flesh one Lord is gonna, one God. The flesh is going to live in us. Well, Jesus, in glorified sense, we will represent Christ who's, on this earth. So who's the we? Who's the we who's going to dwell in us? You can't. Oh, you can't say no. the flesh because the flesh, by definition, is not ubiquitous. It cannot indwell us. Is, so who's the we? I told you, it is Jesus Christ dwelling in us. Both as the Father we and is the plural. Son. We is plural. Who are right. the plural? Both as the Father and the Son. So the Father and the Son are the are two. That's we. But they're not two persons. They're both Jesus Christ. So there's one. So I will come. 
It should, if oneness is true, well, say that, if oneness is true, it should, say, it should say, if anyone loves me and keep my word, I, the Father, will love him and I will come and live with you. And, yeah, no, make, and, and, and my abode with you. But it doesn't say that. It says, we will come and we will make our abode. Right. And then he says, I am he. Another thing you couldn't answer when, when it's talking about the Father. But now in John 8, 24. Excuse me. Excuse me, John. John, look. There's lots of things you're not able to answer here. You can't think through these things because they don't work in oneness theology. For you to say, they oh, you couldn't answer cancer, I'm going to say the same thing to you. You can't answer. One of the things you've not answered at all, I want to get to this my last, my last bit, is you have not even addressed how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at, which I showed on the screen and mentioned. I actually it did. I went back to the second century and talked about the, the violence of the Catholic Church. Can I, can I finish, please? Go ahead. So I'm going to ask you, did you notice the chart that I gave on the screen? Did you notice it? Did you see it? Yeah, I did. I could, okay. The wording was a did little you, small. I couldn't read the answer? words. Okay. So I'd show that the, the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at systematically, where each is called God, each has a will, each speaks. They speak to each other. This is exactly how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. Now, can you refute, in the remaining, remaining bit of time here, can you try and refute the idea that the three persons who have the attributes of personhood, which you said, is will, speaking, wellness of others, which is exactly what we see in that grid, in that relationship. Tell me why that does not support the doctrine of the Trinity, that table, how it's arrived at. Can you please tell me? Yeah, exactly. Um, for, for one, we have no verse in the Bible that supports that we have one, uh, uh, one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Hebrews 1.8 does not satisfy that. The Father is calling the Son God. Um, so You're not addressing what I raised. You're going someplace else. The chart that I raised, and I explained what it is, each is called God, each has the attributes of personhood. Can you tell me why that's incorrect? Is it not the case that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each have attributes of personhood according to the Scriptures? Is it true? Uh, no. It is not. They oh, don't. So the father is not a person. The son's not a person. The Holy Spirit's not doesn't have personhood. They don't. They don't, all three don't have personhood. They are all manifestations of the same one God. Do they have attributes of personhood? Do they speak and have a will? The father speaks. The son speaks. But yet, see, that's what you. Does the, do they have wills? They have, they, that to you they with John sixteen point five biblically. They, they speak and they have wills, the separate wills from each other. That's exactly how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. You, you don't understand. So, so you're saying you've never spoken to yourself before? Never, not once. Oh, okay. man, I, I did a bad job today, or man, I did a good job on that. You're telling me you've never had conversation with yourself? Ever. I'm the one asking you questions. Okay, go ahead. But we, we're out of time. There we go. Our timers went off at the same time. Uh, that flew by. 20 minutes and uh, 40 minutes altogether. A gentleman, thank you for keeping it uh, engaging and uh, tons of fantastic points discussed. So before we get into the audience Q&A, we do have a five-minute concluding statements for the debaters, Matt and John, to wrap up their thoughts and points. So, uh, John, you did start uh, the debate off. Uh, being the affirmative for tonight is oneness biblical. So let's hand it over to you and you've got five minutes whenever you're ready. All right. So um, I'm going to go ahead and start. 
um, throughout the debate tonight, I've proven multiple points that oneness uh, Pentecostalism teaches, and they are biblical. Um, as we can see that uh, Matt Slick failed to answer the many points that I presented, how that Jesus, uh, that we have one God, the Father, and he wants to say that we have one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but never proved it scripturally. And um, he never answered to the fact that um, that that God was manifested into the flesh and that that was the one true God. Um, that First Timothy 3.16, where it says that God was manifest in the flesh. Um, now, how that coincides with the fact that we have one God, the Father. He constantly misrepresented the oneness position um, multiple times and said that I believe a person only has one will when I clearly and biblically showed us where a person can have more than one will. Um, examples is Eve's two different wills in place in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 when she ate the apple. Another one big point I would like to point out is that um, when confronted about the fact that Jesus says he is the Father in John 8, 24, that, um, Matt, Matt had no answer to that as well. Or to the fact that Jesus is called the Holy Spirit in Galatians 4, 4 through 6 and um, Philippians 1, 19 um, and Romans 8. Uh, all in all, uh, he did not prove that oneness is not biblical as the many points that I brought up tonight would show. We go back and watch this and we need to understand of divine humility that I brought up um, where God humbled himself, as Philippians chapter two says, and became a man and that we still have one God, the father. So that means that the father, as I pointed out in first John chapter three, verses one through five, was manifested into the flesh for us. And so with that, um, I'm going to concede the rest of my time for my closing. Okay, John, thank you so much. With two minutes to spare, uh, that was John's concluding statement. Matt, we're going to hand it over to you now, and you have five minutes for a concluding statement. Whenever you're ready, I'll start your timer. Oh, Matt, I think you're on mute. Sorry, I got buried under a bunch of windows. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. All right. Okay. Now I'm hitting start. Okay, go. Um, saying I failed to answer many points doesn't make it so. Um, when I address your issues and you continue to ignore the answers, uh, that does not justify you saying that. In 1 Timothy 6 or 3.16, of course, uh, we agree that God is manifest in the flesh. Of course, that's Jesus, second person of the Trinity. In 1 Corinthians 8, 6, which I responded to many times and told you, yeah, there's one God, the Father. There's also God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And I told you about that. Uh, apparently, you, you've, I don't know why, continued to ignore it. The response I gave to you and then said, I don't answer you. That's a problem when I do answer you. And then you repeatedly ignore the answer that I give. 
uh, that makes me wonder if you're paying attention or if uh, you're just misrepresenting the, the, uh, the op opposing view. Now, I went over the issue with you about the issue of will and uh, in the context of will as person and personhood, one will per person. Um, and then you said the flesh can have a will. When I cross-examined you on that as if it was self-conscious, uh, you, you weren't able to deal with that adequately and properly according to sound logic and understanding. And what you were doing there, which was a mistake, is to mix the idea of a figurative use of the will of the flesh versus the literal will that is extant in persons. I pointed this out, and then you continued to repeat that same error. I think that's a problem that you need to, to deal with. Uh, you need to rectify. You fail to understand what it means to have a will as it regards to person. The Trinity is the teaching that in the divine Godhead is are three persons. Each of the persons has a will. This is logically necessary by the definition of what it means to be person. And we know that Jesus came down from heaven. When I cross-examined you about Jesus coming down from heaven, uh, you got the idea that the flesh was there. And I was testing you to see what you would say and how far you would go in a certain direction. But I believe that because of your oneness theology, you weren't able to go very far. You have to understand that the idea of Jesus claiming that he was with the Father in heaven is exactly what we would expect if a Trinitarian perspective is true. But for you to say that, that I was with the Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you, but I is the person of Jesus, but he's speaking of the Father, but yet he speaks to the Father, his Father speaks to the Son. This is exactly what we would see and expect in the discussion and the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, where we have three separate persons. And what you have done is repeatedly ignore the definition, the attributes of personhood. You've ignored them as they relate to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What you've done is gone to other verses, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and uh, John 8, 24, which doesn't support your view at all, where he's speaking of the Father, and he said he was speaking about the Father because he's speaking about what he had from the beginning, and it was from the Father, and that's what he was talking about, and you missed that. But when you fail to distinguish between the idea of what person is, and you fail, I, I, which I'm really bewildered by, when I show you and you agree that personhood has the attributes of self-awareness, awareness of others, can speak, and things like this, this is what person is, and then Jesus Jesus speaks to the Father, and they have separate wills. This is exactly the issue that demonstrates uh, support for the doctrine of the Trinity. And what you would have to do, we could cross-examine even further, is to say that the will of the flesh is speaking to the will of the divine. And if you want to go that far, then I'm going to call you a flaming heretic because it would deny the true nature of the incarnation and who Christ is on the cross. That's another topic. We'll connect the dots afterwards if you're interested. Maybe have a little discussion. But uh, you failed to deal with the issue of the Trinity chart that I brought up, and I tried to show it to you repeatedly and show you these issues and even got you to admit that, yeah, they do have attributes of personhood. They have attributes of will. They have attributes of speech, which is exactly how the doctrine of the Trinity is. You admit them and then say that's not the doctrine, how the doctrine of the Trinity is, but it's by tradition. But you ignore exactly what it is the evidence has presented to you and then dismiss it and say that it has to do with tradition or something else. But this is a problem, because if you're going to say that the Trinity is not true, you need to be able to refute that which I presented to you, and you've not been able to do that. Personhood demonstrates the issue and necessity of will, uh, 
separate from the will of another person. And when Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done, that is exactly what we expect in the designation of different persons and because they have different wills. You cannot say it's a will of the flesh unless you want to say the flesh has personhood. This is impossible as a logical position for you to hold, even from your oneness position. You have failed to demonstrate that the Trinity is false. You've failed to demonstrate that oneness is true. What you've done is give improper inference, improper logical inference, and you've ignored the data, the information I gave you, and you went to other places, which just, uh, does not designate that uh, your position is true. Out of time. Okay. Thank you, Matt, for that five-minute concluding statement. Gentlemen, uh, fantastic debate. Time has really flown by. I've really enjoyed this. So now we are getting into some audience questions. And we'll give the debaters here a quick 20-second break, as I do want to remind everybody that we have another debate marathon this week. So four debates in four days. Um, last week, we had four debates in three days. So tomorrow, we're back here uh, for a debate. This time, the King James-only controversy, Will Kinney and Turretin fan. The very next day, the Evolution Debate Challenge Series continues. Kent and David Emery, is evolution a reasonable scientific theory? Tonight, of course, we've had the much-anticipated showdown between Matt Slick and John Barton. And then at the end of the week, on Friday, we're having a panel uh, debate on soteriology and all things salvation. So let's get right into these audience questions now. Matt, John, hope you guys are all ready to go. Uh, John, this is your first time on the channel, so I will just reiterate how we like to, uh, you know, proceed in the audience Q&A just to make sure we're moving forward smoothly. Whoever the question is for, we'll make sure you get the last word. So say the question is for Matt. Matt can respond. John, you can give your thoughts as well. And then we'd give Matt the, the final word. So, um, okay. First question that came in all the way near the beginning was from XD Man. So, um, well, he doesn't really specify anybody, so we can just consider this a question for the both of you in case you want to get uh, your input. And he just asked, is, is this debate, you know, the debate regarding the nature of God, oneness versus uh, the Trinity, is it considered a, a salvation issue? Um, he says he feels like it probably is since we need to have some knowledge on who God really is. Um, since Matt ended with his concluding statement, John, why don't we start with you? Go ahead. Oh, uh, John, real quick, I'll unmute you. You were on mute, but you're good now. Oh, Go ahead. Hey. Well, I would say my, um, from my biblical studies that, um, it most definitely is, uh, a salvation issue. Um, from what I believe is that, um, baptism uh, well, the doctrine of Christ must be followed to prevent um, heresies, which is the six points of the doctrine of Christ in Hebrews. You can look it up at six, one through two. Um, and in those is the doctrine of baptism. I believe from uh, Acts twenty two sixteen that it is what washes away the sins that we repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so... Um, from that standpoint, it is highly important, depending on whether you go with the Trinity or with oneness, because uh, the Trinity will baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where oneness actually baptizes in the one name of God, which is Jesus Christ. 
Okay, John, thank you for that response. Uh, Matt, over to you for your response. Whenever you have a false God, you have a false Christ, you have a false Christ, you have a false salvation. And all salvations that are false teach works or ceremonies are necessary to complete the work of Christ on the cross. We're justified by faith, Romans 5, 1, not by faith in a ceremony. And baptism is a ceremony. And if you go through the idea here, if you, if you teach that you have to be baptized in order to be saved and have your sins forgiven, then you're not justified by faith. Because the question then becomes, does the Bible say we're justified by faith? Romans 5, 1, yes. Are we justified by faith when we have faith? Yes, we are. But no, what they want to do is, is walk up to the cross of Christ where the blood of Christ and God himself is shed and then nail the certificate of their baptism and say, now. I'm saved because the ceremony that I've undergone combined with the blood of Christ. Now I can be saved. So no, the one this Pentecostal is a non-Christian cult. No offense to John. Uh, I would buy him a cup of coffee. I'm sure he'd buy me a cup of coffee. He'd be drinks coffee and, uh, and the like, but he's teaching a false God. He died the Trinity and a false incarnation and also a false gospel because he adds <laughs> a ceremony to the requirement of salvation. And that is a, a false gospel. Okay, thank you very much there. Matt, thanks to the both of you for your responses. And okay, moving on. Next question comes in from Truth Defenders. Uh, Truth Defenders, I appreciate uh, the question. And this one is for Barton. So here we go. Who are the persons mentioned in Daniel 7, 9, 13, and 22? The Ancient of Days and the One like a Son of Man. Well... Let me get the verse, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the um, context of that explains who the Son of Man uh, is, symbolizes. It's the saints, and they will receive the kingdom. So uh, if we continue down, let's go there. Uh, in uh, Daniel. Um says in verse 22 and so the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the most high in verse 22 and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom but in the um i believe it's verse nine and you Verse 13, I behold in the night visions, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and he brought him to the ancient of days. And there was given him dominion and glory and kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. So Daniel was grieved in verse 15 and, and wanted to know in verse 16 what the interpretation of those things are. So I believe that the Son of Man the body of Christ is what it, it symbolizes and that the saints or the body of Christ, the church will be given the kingdom. Okay. Thank you so much there, John and Matt over to you for your response. Yeah. Um, something that big, I don't like to commit to on a casual kind of a non cross examination of the text. I, when I do exegesis, I really get into it quite a bit. So no comment on, on who they are. Okay, thank you so much, uh, gentlemen. Let's go to the next question. And we've got a nice healthy mix of questions for the both of you. So why don't we get one in here for Matt? So here we go. Um, question comes in from Project Could. Question for Matt Slick. 
Why did Jesus agree with classical Jewish single-person monotheism in Mark 12, verses 28 to 34, and John 4, 21 to 24? That presupposes you understand what uh, Jewish single classical um, Jew, classical Jewish single monotheism was, and without that being defined, it's difficult to say how the text relates to it. Mm-hmm. So, what is what does he mean? Does he mean strict monotheism, as in Arian? Does he mean in plurality? Because the Jews, many of them, did have an understanding of the plurality of God, given different verses in the Old Testament. Not many people know that. So he's assuming that that the idea of classical Jewish single person monotheism is strictly the view that uh, that is would be Unitarian and it would not even be oneness if you want to go with that because it depends on how the the the, uh, the term is defined and if you guys know what I do whenever someone says to me something I say define the term and then we can discuss it without it properly being defined we can't discuss whether it's it's a good question or not so okay thank you Matt and John if you had any uh, anything to add go ahead yeah, um, <clears throat> I mean, I I agree with this person that Jesus teaches a uh, classic Jewish with single person monotheism would, would work with me in uh, Mark chapter 12 when he quotes the great commandment um, and John 4. Uh, he also teaches that in, in, in John 17, where he clearly says that the only true God is the father. Um I believe he's teaching that uh, because he's teaching us exactly um, who he is and what his sacrifice meant. Um, and that in John, first John three, two, we'll see him as he is when he returns. So that's the father in verse one, it says. Okay. Thank you, uh, John. Matt question was for you. So to be fair, you get the last word. The only true God is the Father, John 17, 3. Um, wait a minute. I already did address that, didn't I? Oh, yeah. It, it was your question. If you wanted a quick final word, you could, or we could move on. Sure. Well, his comment about John 17, 3, if Jesus is saying, if from his perspective, that Jesus is the Father, and Jesus on earth, when he said it, has two natures, and he says... The Father is present tense, only true God, but the Father doesn't have two natures because he's in heaven and Jesus is who he is, then uh, that would be a problem. The Father's in heaven, not possessing two natures because you can't have the, we'll get into it. I'll, I'll go on. There's a logical issue there. I'm going to formulate it. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, Matt. Okay, next question comes in from James Sanborn. Uh, Thank you. Question is for Mr. Barton. So he asks, if you deny Jesus came from eternity in the flesh, are you in the spirit of Antichrist? And he uh, refers to Proverbs 30, uh, verse 4, 1 John 4, 2 to 4, and 14 to 15. Um, I I believe that when referencing the New Testament in uh, 1 John, uh, that the qualification for being in the spirit of the Antichrist is if you don't believe that Jesus uh, is the Christ or that, that, that Jesus uh, is the Son of God manifested in flesh. Um, I don't think that part of the qualification is to believe that he came from eternity past 
in the flesh. Because I don't even think Matt Slick and Trinitarian would believe that the flesh was around for eternity. So thank you. Okay. Appreciate it, John and Matt, over to you. Yeah, when Jesus says he came from, from eternity, what he's doing is claiming the divine attributes ascribed to his personhood. That's why he would say, I was with you before the foundation of the world. It's called the communication of the properties. So we know that the flesh of Christ cannot have come down from heaven. It doesn't exist in heaven, even though that's what John implied earlier. It cannot be there. It's not ubiquitous. The flesh cannot indwell us, can't be everywhere all the time, can't indwell other people. Uh, human bodies. So what this really is saying is if you deny Jesus comes from eternity in the, in the flesh, he, he didn't, sorry, but he didn't come from eternity in the flesh. It's the pre-incarnate Christ who was in union with the divine nature. And that uh, union occurred 2000 years ago. So I think the question, no, no disrespect meant doesn't really display a proper understanding of, of the incarnation nature stuff. Okay. Thank you, Matt. John question was for you. You get the last word. Yeah, um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's a lot like what Matt said. The question just doesn't come from someone who understands how Jesus came from eternity. So um, no comment. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. Moving on. Question comes in from Travis Rennie. This one is now for you, Matt. So he asks, if Jesus is fully man and the Father is not a man, then how are they equal? Jesus is fully man and fully God. He has two distinct natures. It's called the hypostatic union. And the attributes of both natures are ascribed to the single person. So therefore, the person has divine value. And that's why he could be equally with the Father. And that's why Jesus says you must honor the Son even as you honor the Father, John 5, 20 through 23. That's how. Thank you very much, Matt. And uh, John, if there's anything you'd like to add, go ahead. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so... See, oneness can, uh, where the Trinity can't answer this, oneness can actually answer this um, as the, where Jesus is fully man and the Father is not a man because the Father is the spirit that dwells inside of Jesus. And so how are they equal? In the same sense that your spirit um, and your flesh are 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 one is fully human and one is fully fully spirit as just has been the same since uh, genesis 2 7 when the um nefesh uh was created with the um uh adam and the neshima or the breath the spiritual divine breath from god uh combined in those two natures formed the nefesh or the living soul um, in the same way the father and the son are one in that same manner. And that's how, that's how oneness is able to answer that they're equal. <clears throat> okay. Thank you so much, John. Uh, qu question was for you, Matt, if you wanted a uh, final word there. No, it's just the issue that uh, the question doesn't designate or show that Jesus has two natures to say only one nature it misrepresents who Christ is. And so the question doesn't represent him, uh, accurately and completely that's all okay much appreciated and um all right next question is and i'm doing my best here not to ask a question that we've kind of already um engaged so here's one now for uh, john john question comes in from jay 
So did the father step out of Jesus's body for a brief moment in Luke 9, 35 to make a statement before quickly re-entering the son to resume his ministry? Go ahead. All right. Now, um, I would uh, use, for example, well, first off, I'm going to say no. Uh, the father didn't have to step out of Jesus's body for a brief moment for anything. Um, the Father is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. So God doesn't have to be somewhere to actually be there. Or where should I say the image of God doesn't have to be there. But now um, what we we have to understand is that, that even the Son, in John 3.3, 3, the Son uh, who, who is in heaven was also down on earth and in heaven. It says, at least in the King James Version. Um, um, so it, if the son was in heaven and on the earth at the same time, the father inside of Jesus as Isaiah 40, uh, 45 tells us that he's a God that hides himself. So he's the God that's hiding himself inside of Jesus. Um, he doesn't have to step out in order to display his omnipresence now. Thank you, John. Uh, Matt, if there's anything you'd like to add to that. Yeah, oneness would have Jesus speaking to himself, who Father is in heaven, while Jesus is on earth. Yet the person of Jesus has two natures that are in the one body of Christ in the incarnation. The implication is that the flesh then is speaking to the divine. But if it's the one person, you can't separate the person and have is speaking to the Father who's in heaven because that would be another person's talking to. But if it's not another person, just his divine self, then you have the person of the two natures speaking to the single divine nature of the Father. It makes no sense, period. Thank you, Matt. John, you get the last word. Constantly, I guess, being in Trinity, it would make no sense. Um, but... Uh, that's why it's a mystery of how God was manifested into the flesh. Um, and uh, so I wouldn't say that it's wrong to say that Jesus was praying to himself, uh, considering David in Psalm 38, 15, uh, which is, sounds very, very, very messianic, very salvific. Um said that his prayers returned to his own bosom. And uh, so if David could pray to himself and his prayers returned to himself, uh, then then who, who's to say that Jesus couldn't pray to himself? Um, which I find that verse in Psalm 38, 15, very, very, like I said, messianic in, in its context. So not completely... 100% that, that you could use that to to support the fact that Jesus was praying to himself, but it definitely seems like that. Okay, moving on to the next question. This one comes in from Adam Man Carmichael. And this one again is for you, John. And he asks a uh, question for oneness. Who is the he in Acts 20, 28 using biblical exegesis? The he in Acts 20, 
Now take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to be the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. That he, uh, the antecedent for that would be God. Um, so when we look at that, we have to understand that if it's talking about God purchasing the church with his own blood, it's talking about how Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood for us. Now, obviously, me and Matt both agree that Jesus is God. Where we disagree with is whether there's one God the Father, like the Bible talks about, or whether there's one God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So um, uh, does this prove that the Father was pierced and that the Father bled? I do believe Zechariah 12.10 and Acts 20.28 uh, would, would confirm that the one God was pierced. He said that they pierced me. Matt Slick would agree that God said in Zechariah, they pierced me. And so since they pierced God, then there we have one God, the Father, not one God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then they had to have pierced the Father. Since Acts 20, 28 says that God shed his blood, it had to have been the Father's blood, which could only be manifest through Jesus Christ, since that is the flesh that came down from heaven. As okay. John chapter 6 says. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, which God purchased with his own blood. Um, I like the reference he went to, Zechariah 12, 10, and is talking uh, in the Trinitarian communion. And a lot of, you know, I don't know how much to get into here, but... Uh, God purchased the church with his own blood. The only way that could be done is if he uh, became flesh, and he did that. And again, we have this issue of Jesus Christ with two distinct natures, speaking to the Father who is present. So Jesus, the person, was speaking to another person. That's the necessity, because without the Father being a person, you, the person, the Father, could not receive the communication of the Son. It takes two persons to have communication. You don't say that a rock, I talk to a rock, there's no communication there, no reciprocity. So when it talks about the Father, about God purchasing the church with his own blood, the issue of Christ incarnate comes back to this issue of, of whom he's speaking with and about. And um, yeah, I could get into it quite a bit more, but I just don't wanna dominate this whole bit with that issue, trying to be polite with the time. This is an important point, that one person speaking to another person necessitates that the person receiving the information or the communication has to have self-awareness and stuff. Otherwise, it's not communication. And Jesus speaking to the Father would have to be speaking to himself, but he himself is the Father. It would not be uh, personal communication at that point. It wouldn't work. But at any rate, go ahead. Thank you, Matt. John, you can have a quick final word. Um, no, I think... I think um... I think it did pretty good. Okay, awesome. So let's get to the next question here. And uh, this one comes in from Project Could. This one is now for you, Matt. So question for Matt Slick. He asks, what scripture specifically teaches that one God means three persons slash one essence? Why not just stick with 1 Corinthians 8 that specifically defines one God as the Father? 
Yeah, that the questioner demonstrates he doesn't understand how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at, as I said in our discussion here. The Trinity is not arrived at by looking at a single verse. If to assume that is to not understand how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at, it's arrived at systematically. You'll notice that John did not refute the system, did not refute it. I've used this argument countless times with Jehovah's Witnesses, with Christadelphians, with other groups with oneness. There's the information in the chart. That's how the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. Each person or each of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each designates attributes of personhood that communicate to each other. This is exactly how the Trinity is arrived at. It's exactly how it is. And yet I don't see any refutation of that. And so we would not, not say, and I said in our discussion, I'd say uh, it's not the case that the Trinity is refuted by a single verse or approved uh, by a single verse. It's a systematic approach. If the system is false, then the Trinity is false. John has not refuted the system. He's not refuted the approach. No oneness has that I've ever talked to. So the doctrine of the Trinity still stands. Oneness has not been established. Appreciate it, Matt. And uh, John, over to you if you had a response. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, as, um, I, I do appreciate this question, this comment. Um, so this, what I've been trying to get across the whole night. See, uh, what... Um, Matt Slick would say is that this one, it doesn't take one verse to establish the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and I, I, I understand where he's coming from. It takes multiple verses and a little bit of tradition to establish the doctrine of the Trinity. But what, what, what is great about this is it takes one verse to destroy the doctrine of the Trinity when it says that there's one God, the Father, and does not mention the Son and the Holy Ghost alongside with the Father. And so that's why I believe this verse is important, along with not just that, but Malachi 2.10, John 17.3, and, and, and um, Ephesians 4.6. Those verses, there's so many times. How many times, for example, do we have to hear about um, Jesus being resurrected to believe that, that, that that's the case, that he was resurrected, and we got four Gospels. Well, we've got four times at least that, that specifically tells us in the New Testament that they have one God the Father, not one God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's what I, 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 I don't understand why he can't grasp a hold of how many times we have to be told we have one God the Father to actually understand that that's the case. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate this. Okay. And Matt, you get the last word. If Jesus is the same person as the Father, then he wouldn't be speaking to someone else he calls the Father who was with him before the incarnation. He wouldn't be talking like that like he does in John 6, 37 through 40. If Jesus is the same person as the Father, he would not be speaking to someone else who calls the Father who he said he was with before he was incarnate. We don't get that. Uh, what we do get is uh, the differences of personhood uh, as we establish and I've shown from that chart that's there. And when someone says one verse, well, look, this doesn't prove the Trinity, but you can go to 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There's three mentioned in one verse. Go baptize the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's three in one verse. And there's other verses like that where the three are signified together as one. 
we know there's only one God, but we also know the Father's called God, the Son's called God, the Holy Spirit's called God, and yet they each have a will, and they speak to each other. This is exactly how personhood is established on the doctrine of the Trinity is established. He's not refuted this. Again, never has there been an oneness who's refuted this. They just assert that they're the same person, but that's not what we say. Personhood is designated by the differentiation of wills, and he's admitted that. They had different wills, hence it's logically necessary to see different persons. I'm waiting for one this person to deal with that, but they have never been able to deal with that. Go ahead. Okay, thank you so much for the uh, question there, Project Could, and the answers, uh, Matt and John. So next one is a question for the both of you. So I guess since Matt uh, started with the previous question, John, we can start with you for this one. So this one comes in from uh, Word Warriors, and uh, question for Matt and John. Isn't having direct biblical statements for one's view superior to arriving at a doctrine systematically? If the Bible actually states it, isn't that better? John, go ahead. And I would agree um, that uh, if we're going to talk about the which uh, statement supersedes the other, whether something that's drawn up systematically or, or traditionally, as opposed to something that's directly biblically stated, uh, if the Bible actually states it, that is the greater testament, I do believe, to to um, to its authenticity. Uh, so uh, that's another reason why earlier I mentioned the fact that um, the tradition of the Trinity that um, not only did it originate in the second century with Tertullian, but didn't fully develop for another two, three hundred years. Is it the Council of uh, the, um, uh, with the uh, origin in Athanasius? And so we have to understand that 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 this systematic traditional buildup of a doctrine and perfecting it is is not biblical. But but um, more based on philosophical ideas. Um, so, yeah, I do believe if the Bible actually states it, it is better. Okay, thank you, John and Matt. Um, the floor is yours for your response. And to say that you have to have a single verse in order for a doctrine to be true uh, demonstrates a lack of understanding of many of the doctrines in the Bible. For example, uh, Penal substitutionary atonement is a systematically arrived at doctrine, as is the doctrine of imputation and double imputation. Also, the doctrine of federal headship. Uh, we can talk about women, pastors, and elders. Uh, baptism. Oh, I would love to go to the baptism sometime and how it relates to the work of Christ. So a lot of these things are systematically understood. Uh, wouldn't it be nicer to have a single statement that says blah, 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 whatever we want? That'd be nicer. But that's not always the case. Uh, you know, for example, uh, God says in John, uh, Peter says, Second uh, Peter 3, 9, he wants all people to be saved. Yet Jesus speaks in parables and uh, so people will not be saved, Mark 4, 10 through 12. You can't just say, well, this one verse is the, the true systematic approach or the true approach. What we need is singularity, truth of Second Peter 3, 9, he wants all to be saved. Well, then we have to ignore then Mark uh, 4, 10 through 12. He speaks in parables, so they'll not be saved. Now we have to apply, apply a systematic approach to make, uh, to make sense of them. 
So you can't just say it's just one thing, one verse, one doctrine, one thing. That, that's just not how it works. You have to go through uh, more than that. In fact, even John did try to do that with the idea of uh, oneness. He tried to go through it systematically. And uh, like I said, it's not, uh, well, okay, try to go through it systematically. All right, Matt, appreciate that. John and Matt, thanks for the answer to that good question. So um, I'll start winding it down here with you know a couple more questions as we are at the uh, two hour and 15 minute mark. I do thank the debaters for their time for tonight. So this one comes in from James Rucker. Um, and, and I will uh, mention to anybody in the chat, not sure, you know, typically we do have uh, somebody who's hosting an after show or two uh, to these debates. There we go. There we go, brother. So uh, Matt Slick, there's one after show. And if anybody else is having an after show or anybody just wants to go over to Matt's, um, you know, we'll make sure we get a link in the descriptor in the uh, live chat for people to see. Um, okay. James Rucker asks a question for you, John. So he, right. he puts forth Romans eight twenty seven. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. How is this the same person? That's a good question. Now, what I would say is, how is it not the same person? Because it says, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, it doesn't necessarily distinguish the he from the mind of the spirit, it just says he knows what the mind of the spirit is. And if they are the same person, it would make sense why he knows what the mind of the spirit is. And that's because they're the same God. And, 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 and I'm quite certain that Matt Slick would agree with the fact that they are the same God. He who searches the mind of the spirit, that he and the spirit are the same God. is just our view on who God is, whether personal, multi-personal or not, is different. So um, I do believe that uh, it's not the it, it's it's talking about the same person, which is the same God. <clears throat> OK, thank you, John. Uh, Matt, floor is yours. Um, now, he searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the spirit is. That means the spirit has a mind. And it says he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. The he is separate in topic than the spirit because he as the Son makes intercession for the saints. We know that Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek makes intercession. Hebrews 7, 20, uh, 7, 6, 20, 7, 25. So he, that's Jesus, makes intercession for the sa saints according to the will of God, and that references the Father. So we have right here a great verse that supports Trinitarian theology, designating the plurality of God right there. Okay, thank you, Matt. And John, you get the last word. Yeah, no, no. You know, I'm glad you point this out. Um, as it says, the he who searches the hearts and knows the mind of the spirit, because he, the spirit, which is, I believe, the antecedent for he right here, makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. But I believe that the spirit is the one who intercedes and makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. That that being the case, uh, clearly harmonizes with the rest of the new testament that teaches that the holy spirit is jesus christ philippians 119 galatians 4 4 through 6 uh, john 14 16 through 17 18 uh it's very clear um even in hebrews chapter 3 
lined up with Hebrews chapter four, where the Holy Spirit speaks and then says the same word Jesus says in in um, chapter four of Hebrews. Uh, <clears throat> it, it's very clear that they're the same person. Okay, and here we go. We're going to um, put up one final question. This one comes in the form of a super chat, uh, short and sweet. Alec Cox, thank you so much for the support. And it's a question for both of you. So uh, Alec asks for, um, I guess, both of your exegesis or understanding of John 8.58. In quotes, he puts, I am, and Exodus uh, 3.14. Um Whoever wants to start, I mean, uh, I guess John started with the last one. Matt, if you wanted to start with this one. The exegesis of John A58? Yeah, I believe so. Um, I got it up on screen here. Yeah, yeah I know what it is. Yeah, I know yeah. what it is. Before Abraham was, I am. Um, yeah, he's just claiming to, to be the divine one uh, because he was the one speaking at the guard and the... Uh, the guard, excuse me, uh, he was the one speaking to Moses in, in Exodus 3.14. And it was never the father who was uh, seen, John 6.46. Never the father who was there uh, because no one's ever seen the father at any time. Uh, we know that God is seen in the Old Testament. Uh, I can quote you a lot of verses for that. It was never the father uh, who was seen. And so all Jesus is doing is claiming to be the one who is the I am. And they want to kill him for that. Um, and that's what's going on there. I can go into quite a bit more in that, but that should do for now. All right. Appreciate it, Matt and John. Uh, yeah. Go um, ahead. Over to you. So, uh, yeah, Alex, uh, in John 8, 58, he says, I am. He, he says, I am in John 8 a couple of times. And uh, in John 13, 19 through 20, he says, I am he, in reference to the him that sent him uh, uh, in John uh, 13, 20. It, he says it in the garden. Um, these are clear examples throughout the gospel where Jesus claims uh, to be God. Uh, I, I like, um, if, if we go with chapter 8 um, and verse 58, where he says, Verily, verily, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And they took stones up to, to stone him. That is the same thing that he is saying um, to the Jews in the beginning of chapter 8 when he goes, um, in verse 24, I said, therefore, unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. So from a biblical standpoint, he's not going to contradict himself when he says, I am, or I am he. Um, and when they actually, what's confirmed in here is when they ask him, who art thou? In verse 26, and he says, even the same I said unto you from the beginning, I have many things to say and judge you. But he that sent me is true and i speak to the word world those things which i've heard of him we understand that the he that jesus is talking about in verse 24 i am he is applied to the father and that's why verse 27 says that they understood not that he spake to them of the father so we have one god the father and that is the i am and that's what jesus is trying to tell us he is that one god the father Okay, well, that wraps up the Q&A and the debate. Great job coming at two and a half hours. Great endurance, Matt and John. And I appreciate you guys making for a memorable debate, as we typically like to do, though. I want to hand it to the debater, debaters for some final words, final thoughts. And again, reminder, it looks like Matt Slick is half, having an after show. So one of the mods in the chat, if you could. 
just post a link to Matt's channel and then people will know exactly where to go to check out the after show. Uh, John, why don't we start with you since it's your first time here on, on this uh, debate platform. Thanks for doing this. Final words, final thoughts. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was uh, exciting to come on here and to do this. And, uh, you know, uh, I've been watching a lot of your debates, Matt, and uh, um, I'm grateful for the chance to come out here and uh, I guess uh, do battle. One is versus Trinity. Um, uh, I uh, I hope that uh, you can uh, learn to kind of see past a couple things. Where like uh, when it comes to scriptures that tell us we have one God, the Father. It's very explicit. And I'll be praying for you on that. Um, so uh, you know, I'm gonna say good night, guys. Okay, John. Thank you very much for those final words, final thoughts. Matt, over to you. Final thoughts, final words, and thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and uh, enjoy the debate. And um, uh, I think uh, that what people need to do is not look to tradition, but Scripture, and see, is Jesus speaking to himself? Is he praying to himself? But if he's praying to himself, it's not communication. If he's praying to the Father, then it makes sense. The Trinity through the chart that I gave, was not addressed, was not refuted. The Trinity doctrine stands. The personhood of Christ, the person of the Father, simultaneous, stands. And I need to warn people, if you continue to believe in oneness theology, you're going to continue to believe in a false gospel. And maybe we can talk about the issue of baptism. I'll go to the after show. If people want to come in, we can talk about that, why it's not necessary for salvation. And I can prove it from Scripture. Because all false religions believe you have to add something to the work of Christ in order to be saved. And this, the reason I'm bringing this up is because oneness does not teach the true God, and it always leads to a false gospel. Whenever you have a false God, you always have a false gospel. And so that's what I'm concerned about. You know, um, I think it was a good debate, and maybe we'll have another discussion another time on some more topics. It'll be interesting. Awesome. Thank you, Matt, for those final thoughts, final words. And it looks like we've... Uh, had many of the mods in the chat posting the link to uh, the after show and and Matt your channel that the after show is on. So again, gentlemen, thanks for the debate. I'm gonna let you guys get out of here. I always stick around for a couple minutes just to go over some reminders and announcements for future debate. So Matt, John, we'll let you get out of here and thanks again for the debate. Sure, no problem. All right, I'm out. Talk to you guys okay. later. All right, there we go. That concludes another fantastic debate, this time on the uh, nature of God. So I told you, uh, everybody in the audience, I told you that this is the summer of debates. And, uh, you know, what I wanted to do is uh, put forth debates on all sorts of topics. Soteriology, creation, evolution, as you know, uh, we're hosting the uh, 2022 Evolution Debate Challenge series, which uh, alone in that series, we've already done, I believe, 30. I think we just hit our 30th debate last week when we had our debate marathon, four debates in three nights. If you haven't yet uh, caught up on all of those awesome debates, please do. We had uh, T-Rock and James W. They debated Noah's Ark, Noah's Flood. We had uh, Kent Hoven and Wade the Wizard. They had their endgame debate. We had Kent and uh, Snake was right. They debated transitional fossils. And then we had um, 
the much anticipated debate that did not disappoint between uh, Kent and Atheist Jr. So again, this is the summer of all debates. Um, and this week, the debate marathon continues. We've got four in a row. So uh, tonight, as we have just uh, experienced, is Oneness Biblical, Matt Slick and John Barton. Uh, this was a ton of fun. Matt Slick will be back here next month as well. Uh, he will be doing another debate with um, one Simus or his YouTube channel specifically. I saw him in the chat earlier. Not sure if he's there anymore. If he is, he can uh, say something in the chat and uh you know we'll, we'll know where to find his channel so uh that'll be next month in august tomorrow we're back here debate number two will kinney and turretin fan the king king james only controversy debate this is going to be uh this one's going to be fun this one's going to be great so both uh very well studied uh individuals and so i'm looking forward to this one then the um the next day we're supposed to have the evolution debate challenge series continues is he, is evolution a reasonable scientific theory so david emery and dr dino so this uh this one is going to be in two days and uh there we go your way or yahweh tested by fire so him and matt slick will be debating uh next month appreciate that doki doki bible club uh you guys are the life and blood of this channel so you know, if, if you like what you're seeing, you like the full-time content, including uh, a lot of the behind-the-scenes work, for example, you know, there's a couple books behind me there. The Endogenous Retrovirus Handbook, which I uh, recently released a couple months ago. Uh, for a while there, it was the number one new release. And, uh, you know, that's all thanks to, uh, you know, everybody who has chosen to, to support this channel and, and ministry. So again, you guys are the life and blood of this channel. And if you'd like to support us, you can do so over on our main website or become a patron for as little as a dollar a month where you can receive access, or I should say gain access to plenty of uh, exclusive Standing for Truth content. So on Friday, we were supposed to have um, Taylor Stewart and... Uh, Slam RN, I appreciate that, and I appreciate all the feedback uh, from critics and non-critics alike on the ERV handbook. So if you haven't yet, um, you know, picked up that book, as I like to say or ask, what are you waiting for? You know, the limited edition cover, the orange cover, as you can see back there, is still available. As um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, people expressing how much they love that cover specifically. So you know, we've we've left it there for people to still get uh you can find that on amazon cheryl appreciate that you know i started my um eschatology series so you know end times theology with with donnie b uh last night i posted the first episode and i've got hours and hours and hours of content on uh end times theology so uh i was glad to uh, see the feedback on that video i think over 100 plus comments already so i've i've responded to as many as i can but what I think I'm going to do is after each episode, depending on the comment section and how many questions I get um, and all the feedback, I will do like a comments on comments video as well. And I'll do that live where I go through the uh, some of the comments and questions and then give my give my feedback. So uh, that being said, Friday, we were supposed to have uh, Kelly Powers and Taylor Stewart, but it looks like it's not 100% yet, but Taylor Stewart may have to 
reschedule. The debate was supposed to be on uni um, unitarianism. I was about to say uniformitarianism. I'm so used to the creation versus evolution topics. So um, yeah, it was supposed to be on unitarianism. And um, it looks like we may have to reschedule for either the following week or the week after that. We'll see what uh, Taylor says when he uh, responds to me. So either that debate is still going to be on, or if we uh, reschedule it, then what we're going to do is have our next uh, soteriology panel discussion um, on Friday. So at least that way we, we stay on schedule with our week after week of debate marathon. So either way, we're going to have a show that, that day. And if that day turns out to be, um, you know, the day for our next panel discussion, soteriology wise, then uh, we'll start that a bit earlier too, which will be cool. And um, I believe that panel discussion okay, is going to be on the parable of the sower. So that's going to be a ton of fun, lots of different views to, um, you know, come together and uh, discuss and, and debate that verse. Last week, we had Romans 8, 814, I think it was. Let's see, just to double check. Romans 814, I believe it was, or 813. So, um, and then the week before we had John 15, week before that we had James 2. So again, if you're not yet subscribed and you just love sophisticated discussion and debate, please make sure to hit that subscribe button. And guys, we're just a few, um, few subscribers away from hitting the 10,000 uh, subscriber mark. So again, if you're not yet subscribed, please do hit that subscribe button, share it around to your friends and family and help us to... Um, hit 10,000 subscribers. If you're a debate addict like myself, you've got a ton of debates to look forward to uh, this summer. So anyways, uh, that's all that comes to mind. I do appreciate everybody being here for this awesome debate. I love this topic. You know, this topic is always a ton of fun and very interesting to me. Uh, Doki Doki Bible Club has posted uh, Matt Slick's channel and after show. So um, head on over there where the uh, debate continues. All right, guys. Uh, God bless everybody. Thank you for tuning in.